So, uh, thanks for coming. Um, so we're on Parsha's Breshis, and, uh, you know, it, it's, it's almost... It, it, it's almost unfair. It's almost unfair to, to, to even begin to talk about Parsha's Breshis because it's the creation of the entire universe. So before you've started, you've already failed, you know. So having already failed at the outset, now let me try to do the best I can do. So it, it's, just, it's just impossible to sum up everything. And this is part of the, the infinity of the Torah. The, the, the genius is too small a word uh, of, the, of the Torah that somehow, um, somehow, not only does Hashem do justice, but He's able to do it in such a, in in, in such a concise way that um, just leads to endless, 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 endless uh, stabs at understanding. You know, um, I'm always reminded of of uh, of, of this uh, encounter that I had with uh, Rabbi Aaron of, of Israelite. Um, he was beginning his. Uh, his program, and it was something like a, a three-week program, and uh, it was an introduction to Torah, and, but it's, you know, it, it has a lot of uh, philosophical depth to it, so even if you've uh, learned a little bit, it's, uh, it, it's still a good program. So I had been learning for, for a while, but, um, but I attended the, 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 the first day class, and um, he had a, a blackboard in front of the room, and he opens up the the, the first class, the first discussion this way, he says, okay, everyone, what's the Torah? So someone raises their hand and says, a book of history. And he says, very good. And he writes down a book of history. And then someone else writes, a book of laws. And he says, very good. And he writes down a book of laws. And then I raised my hand and he says, yes, go ahead. And I said, it's the infinite compressed into the finite. And he said, okay, let's hold off on that thought for a moment. You know, so... <laughs> so you know, there are certain moments where you really see the infinity of the Torah absolutely condensed into somehow a few letters. I mean, it's, it's awesome just to even think about. And, and this is what we have in the beginning of Breshis. Um, just the whole, the whole creation of the world out of nothing. When, when a human being creates something, even if he creates something magnificent, he creates something out of something. But when Hashem created the universe, He created it out of out of nothingness itself. So this is uh, this is um, you know just the sort of the conversation sort of stops there. You know, there's there's an interesting uh, story about some maskilim. Maskilim is uh, it's the English well it's the English for maskilim would be uh, sort of students of the quote unquote enlightenment and. Um, you know, the irony of the Enlightenment, which was a, a historical movement which really came to oppose Torah and, um, you know, was quote-unquote uh, rationally based, um, you know, took away a lot of Jews, unfortunately, um, from, from, from Judaism. And the, the, the irony of them calling themselves the Enlightenment is that it's predicated on the assumption that the world is a rational place. And as Reb Shlomo put it one time, I never forgot it, he said, you know, the world doesn't work in a one plus one equals two way. Anyone who's lived a day in this world knows that the world does not work on that basis. There's nothing rational about the world. The world is not irrational. The world is super rational. In other words, God who created our minds is infinitely beyond our minds. 
So irrational means it doesn't make sense. The world is not irrational. Superrational means that our mind, in its finiteness, can only grasp so much of reality, and that Hashem is beyond that. As we always say, Hashem doesn't have a body. Hashem makes bodies. Right? Hashem makes our brain. He's beyond our brain. So, so these students of the Enlightenment came up to um, the Briska Rav, one of the greatest rabbis of the last hundred years or more, and he was also particularly known as being a, a master Talmudist. And, um, and uh, the way I heard the story, there was sort of like an awkward encounter since they had been students of his at one point and now had left, had left the Torah world. And so they said to him, um, listen, we have some questions for you. Can we ask you some questions? And he said, he said, well, I'm happy to answer any questions as long as they're real questions. He said, but really, if what you're posing to me is questions in the form of answers, if you're really coming to me with answers and not questions, he said, I can't answer answers with answers. Because you've already arrived at the answer. You've already arrived at the answer. So how can I answer ans- questions? You know, in other words, you, you follow. So, so an open heart. An open heart. But you know something? To have an open heart, a person has to be very humble. You know, because they have to realize that they're not they're not, they're not the end product. And that's, that's very, very, very hard. You know, I heard Rabbi Wine say this, and um, I'm honestly still trying to understand it, but I know that it's true. And it's a very, very difficult uh, idea um, in terms of personal uh, refinement and elevation. He says that it's easier for a person to go from zero to 75% then it is for a person to go from 75% to 80%. Now that, that seems counterintuitive. You would think that that couldn't be. You're going from 0 to 75%. That's a massive change. That's a massive change. But you see, you know what the problem is? Is that once that person hits that 75%, inside, 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 they feel as though they got it right and they've arrived and they're a finished product. And once a person feels about themselves that they're a finished product, then any sort of meaningful change to go from 75% to 80%, any type of meaningful change is serious root canal. (laughs) It's serious heavy-duty root canal. It really is. Because, ugh. Now, you know something? I just went from completely wrong to completely right at great personal sacrifice. Now you want me to go from completely right to what exactly? (laughs) Completely right kind of ends at completely right, doesn't it? What's the next step? That's kind of, whoa. That's that's hard. That's really hard. But that's, that's the glory of this world. That's why we get 120 years. Not to stop, but that's, that's humility. That's humility. And it's also a recognition of this chasen kala dynamic of Hashem and the Torah being the groom, so to speak, 
um, humanly speaking, and and us, Klau Yisrael, us as individuals, being the bride, being the the vessel to hold the light. This is um, this 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 is intrinsically a um, a humbling dynamic, because because it means that that our greatest state is to receive, and um, of course also to share. Because a person can't just be a vessel, they have to be an overflowing vessel. And, um, you know, we've talked about it different times, that, um, you know, someone came up to me one time, a few years ago, and he says, basically, he said it in a very nice way, but I'll just sort of make it short and sweet. He basically said, I'm more religious than my wife. (laughs) That was, you know, he didn't put it in those words. But he's like, I want my wife to be more religious. And I asked him, I said, when, when, does she see you learning Torah? Like, what are you doing with your free time? Are you being, are you being more religious than her in your free time? In other words, are you just lecturing her? Are you doing or are you talking? You know, I mean, it, when we're overflowing, that's, that, then you don't have to tell someone, go to shul, do this, do that. They naturally want to do that because they see you overflowing. That's the best advertisement in the entire world. Um, like Reb Shlomo said one time, he said, you know, a good friend is someone who, when you're around them, you want to be a better person. But a best friend is someone, when you're around them, you're already a better person. So how do you be a best friend to someone? By overflowing. Then, then they already, they're already there. Okay. So now let's get back to Breshis. Breshis, before we can get to that, we have to get to the fact, cover some very basic ideas. First of all, we have to understand that the Torah that we're reading right now is not the Torah that we had yesterday, and it's certainly not the Torah that we had last year. It's a brand new Torah. It's the exact same letters. It's the exact same halachas. Everything is the same, seemingly, and yet, if you look at it, it's 100% a different document, because it's alive. The letters are alive. You know, when people check their mezuzahs, mezuzahs are like barometers. They take the temperature of the spirituality in the home. And when certain letters, that's why they have to be checked, because they're living, breathing, sort of litmus tests of where we're holding and if letters start to fade or whatever it is, they have to be corrected. The Torah itself is that on the grandest level. It's reflecting what's going on in the world at every single moment. So it's a new Torah that we have. So with this in mind, we can really understand the way the Torah ends. Because if I had to pick something to end the Torah on, first of all, I would have ended it with Moshe going into Israel. 100%. That's me talking as a writer. But as you can see, God knows better. Um, Moshe doesn't quite make it in, which is amazing because we haven't made it in yet. You know, it's a reflection of, you know, it says, it says in Lasid Lavo, in the end of days, one of the sort of more Kabbalistic opinions is that the, see, when the Torah was given, it was given as one long word. And according to the Ramban, every single word in the Torah, every single word in the Torah is a name of God. Okay? When it was first given, it was given in one long word. 
Now you want to hear just some, just a, a majestic aspect of the Hebrew language. Mila means word, but you know what it also means? To cut, like a bris mila, like a circumcision. Mila also means to cut. Isn't it interesting that the word, that the Torah was given in one long word, and yet as each word is cut, so to speak, it becomes a word. The word in Hebrew, mila, word and cut, it's the same, it's the same thing. So there's a, there's a teaching that the white spaces in between the words themselves will change. So it will be the same sequence of letters, but it will be punctuated by the white spaces differently. And the entire history of the Galus, since the Torah was not revealed, meaning since it stopped chronicling current events, so to speak, with the last of the Nevi'im, we're going to be able to read an account of everything that happened up until Mashiach. So, who knows how the Torah is going to end then? Maybe with Moshe entering into the land, or maybe with the arrival of Mashiach and all of us entering into the land. Okay? I mean, it's, it's awesome. Because your deeds right now, when you do something, you might get written up. You know, right now, maybe... People are so happy to see their name in a newspaper, right? Everyone always loves that. Maybe because it's a little inkling on a soul level of what it might be to see your name in the ultimate print, in the final edition of the Torah. Maybe there's that going on. I don't know. Just uh, popped into my head. Anyway, let's go further. So how does the Torah end? So if you look at Rashi, the Torah ends with an allusion to the breaking of the luchos which is a really surprising way to end the Torah. It says that what Moshe did was wondrous before all the eyes of Israel. Now look in Rashi. What, what are they referring to? What did Moshe do exactly? He smashed the luchos. Which, if you think about it, that really was an incredible act. Here he's got these miraculous stones which are floating. Right? Because it says at one point that Moshe grabbed the stones, and then headed down to where the Jews were. But what do you mean he grabbed the stone? Wasn't he holding the stones? So it says, no, they were floating. So, I mean, these were like, there were tons of miracles, all with these luchos written by the finger of God. Can you imagine taking these and smashing them? And then you want to hear something even more wild? Hashem says back to him, Yashkech, good job, you did good. So, okay. Anyway, what I want to say just is very, very simple. At the end of the Torah, all of our preconceptions of what the Torah is have to be smashed. If we think that we've arrived at this level of infinite knowledge, you know, sometimes a person can know too much. You know, have you ever heard the expression, a little knowledge is a dangerous thing? Because sometimes a person thinks that they know. This is one of our biggest problems in terms of Torah, communicating Torah to our brothers and sisters today, because a lot of them have grown up and have experienced an extremely superficial exposure to the Torah. And the problem is, is that this experience was negative, as why shouldn't it be negative? You know, if, they, if they're experiencing something so limited and they're being told that this is what we believe in, I mean, how can that not be depressing? And um, 
And what happens is, is that they get older and people tell them, oh, you got to check this out. you got to check out the Torah. The Torah is unbelievable. And they say, I've already checked out the Torah. I can tell you it is not unbelievable. <laughs> you know? So the problem is, is that with their little bit of knowledge, they think that they know. And so it cuts them off. You know, when, when Adam and Chava ate from the Eitzadas, Eitzadas means the, the tree of knowledge of good and bad. They brought death into the world. We talk about it a lot. A lot of times, when you quote-unquote know, this superficial level of knowing, when you think you know, you bring death into the world. Because you cut yourself off from a relationship with that thing on a deeper level. Because you think you already know. So what do I have to go further for? I already know. And it's the death of so many relationships. I already know you. You're this way. That's what it is. That's the end. And you know what? It really is the end. Because then how can you continue to get to know the person? You know, I, I, I always like to mention it because I think it's such a beautiful brocha. When Reb Shlomo married my, my wife and me, he blessed us that we should always surprise each other. Because when you surprise another person, you, you bring into the world this, this energy of not knowing. Oh, wow, you did that? I didn't expect that. Then a part of you wakes up and you say, oh, I don't know you. And then that's life. And then that's life, because now I want to get to know you. You know? So, so the Torah ends with the smashing of the luchos. In other words, when we get to the end of the Torah, we have to realize, you know something, I don't know. And now you open yourself up and you become a vessel to receiving on a much higher level. Now, this thought came to me while dancing on Simcha's Torah. The best thoughts seem to come while dancing. Um... And I saw an explanation for this in the name of the Maharal, um, who said that when you're dancing, your soul has rulership over your body. And so, um, you know, so at that point, it's, very, it's a very good moment when you're dancing to, to learn. And this also, by the way, just for people who it's strange to, they don't, they don't really understand. So let me just explain it. You know, sometimes you see the the dancing um, in, uh, especially in, in 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 Torah environments, and the men and the women aren't dancing together. It's because this dancing is really it's it's a form of prayer. It's a very elevated type of thing for a moment. So the dancing on Simchas Torah. So everybody knows that at Simchas Torah we're finishing the Torah, and then we're starting the Torah anew, and. Um, and we'll get into this a little bit more in a moment. But, um, well, I think we have to do it right now, just to understand this thought. Um, we talked about it a little bit yesterday. The idea is that there are two real cycles that go on in the Torah simultaneously. One cycle is like what I would call a historical cycle. So, for instance, what I mean by this is Rosh Hashanah is celebrating the creation of the world. That's the first of Tishrei. And yet, we know that whatever you're reading in the Torah, at that moment it's going on in the world. And we don't read about the creation of the world until Shabbos Breshis, this past Shabbos, which is, you know, two, three weeks after Rosh Hashanah. So I'll give you another example. By Pesach, 
We celebrate it on the 15th of Nisan. That's the date on the calendar where we left Egypt. And yet, when we read the Parshas of leaving Egypt, this period called Shovavim, which is a very intense personal time of personal growth and personal development, we don't, we don't read those Parshas until January or February. So you see in both instances, the creation of the world and leaving Egypt, that the Parsha cycle is a separate cycle from the historical cycle. So you have two different cycles going on. So how are we to understand this? So I would like to suggest the following, that when it comes to the Torah cycle, that what's going on is a, cre- is a reality that you are participating in and you yourself are creating. And by this, let me give you some support so you understand what I'm talking about. On Shmini Atzeres, which is when, which is also known as Simchas Torah, which is when we finish the Torah and start it again, this is the 22nd day after Rosh Hashanah. So just so we're all familiar with the math, how that works, from Rosh Hashanah to Yom Kippur is 10 days. Then there are four days in between Yom Kippur and Sukkot, so that's 14 days. Sukkot is already seven days, that's 21 days. And then Shmini Atzeres is the eighth day after that. So that's 22 days. Our mystical tradition is that Hashem created the universe with the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. So the 22 days between Rosh Hashanah and Shmini Atzeres slash Simchas Torah, when we read the Torah again, when we read Breshis again, is another beginning. But this is a beginning. These 22, which is paralleling the 22 letters that Hashem created the world with, this is a 22 that we are bringing into effect through all of the davening of Rosh Hashanah, of Yom Kippur, of Sukkot, of Hoshana Rab, of Shmini Atzeres. We're bringing all of that kaychas, all of that energy into the world and bringing about this creation. So it's this awesome thing. And on Shmini Atzeres, you know, I was mentioning to the Chavra, I was able, thank God, to sleep in the sukkah seven days. And then on the eighth day, I wake up in my own bed and I saw something strange, which was walls, right? So walls are really holy because there are a lot of different kinds of walls. There are good walls and there are bad walls. There are the walls that we put on between our soul and our bodies so that we can hear the voice of our own souls. These are bad walls, right? But then there are also good walls. They're the walls that we put around us to protect ourselves and to make boundaries. These are good walls. So a person has to have the seichel, the wisdom of knowing how to make walls and when to make walls. And on Shmini Atzeres, which is this first day of walls, what do we read in the Haftarah? Well, the first thing that we read is the 22,000, 22, remember that number? The 22,000 sacrifices that... Shlomo Melech, King Solomon, brought in the dedication of the Beis HaMikdash. Awesome, right? That, that exact number on that exact day. But also the Beis HaMikdash is the holiest walls. It's also a miniature of the world. And so what we have is real walls coming into effect, the real creation of the world, on the day that we're starting the Torah, reading Breshis again. In other words, this world is coming into formation in front of our eyes, and we're bringing it into effect. This is the Torah cycle of creation. Okay, so now how do we get there? Because we're saying it's all new. So now with this, with this as an introduction, listen to the dancing of Simcha's Torah. So, so everybody knows there's 600,000 letters in the Torah. And so 
what people feel is that, okay, so I correspond. I, I have a letter in the Torah. I correspond to a letter in the Torah. That's all, that's all well and good. But it's deeper than that. Because you are a letter in the Torah. It's not that you correspond to a letter in the Torah. You are a letter in the Torah. Right now, there's a room full of letters in the Torah sitting together. And what's so awesome to me, I wish I had the eyes. I wish I were someone like the Chos of Lublin. I wish I could, I could read the, 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 the Pasuk that's being spelled out in front of me right now. I wish I could read the combination of the letters that's in front of me right now. And you know what? Letters, if you rearrange them, they spell different things. Which means from the time that we started learning Torah, whatever Pasuk this is when you walked in, it's a higher different Pasuk right now. Because the energy is different in the room right now, which means the arrangement is different. Which means that, you know, anyway, well, I can't, but at least we have the idea. You know, I tell you, one of the kavanas that people have in mind, which is so great, I love it so much, is we say, you know, and may I have in mind everything that the members of the Anshe Knesset Hagadola, which are really the people who formulated the Siddur and, and a lot, they included Nevi'im and also all the greats about 2,000 years ago. Let me have in mind what they had in mind when they did mitzvahs. In other words, you know what? I, that knowledge is not even accessible to me anymore, in large part. But at least I know they had something in mind. So God, count, count for me that I should have in mind what they had in mind. So we still have this link, you know? It's, okay, so, so you are a letter. Now, now let's talk about, let's talk about physics for a moment. When, when molecules become very excited, they jump a quantum state. So, the example would be, if you have water, which is H2O, and you boil water, the molecules become very, very, very excited, and then they jump and they become vapor. It's a completely different state, but it's still H2O and it's still vapor. Okay? Now, the Torah gets deeper every single year. See, Rabbi Shlomo said like this one time. Well, he said, he said that at a wedding, at a wedding, it's not that the chassan and kala, the bride and groom, get married and so everybody's happy. He said, everyone has to be happy so that the bride and groom can get married. Because you have two, you have two, and then when everyone gets happy, they create a higher level of energy, and then you jump a notch, and then those two become one. Okay? I mean, even in their lower state, they still share the same soul, but... That soul has to be united, so they have to jump a level. And so the simcha, the excitement at a wedding, creates the environment for the two to become one. They jump a level. So now, the dancing of simcha's Torah, you have in the shul, all the letters of the Torah are dancing. Because you are a letter. So you've got the excitement of the letters themselves. They're all dancing, 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 dancing. And then what happens? You jump back up to Breshis. But it's not a circle. It's a spiral. You're jumping an entire level up. And the Torah becomes a new Torah. It's a new Torah with a new energy. 
And, and we, we bring that about. Through our simcha, through our joy, through our energy, through our dveikaskai, through our cleaving to Hashem, you've got the excitement of the letters of the Torah dancing, and then boom, they jump up a level, and the Torah starts again. So now, now what do we do? So, so, so beginnings are really intense, you know? It says, it says in the Talmud, all beginnings are difficult. And, um, and it doesn't say to begin something is difficult. <laughs> all beginnings are difficult. And one of the reasons is because when someone starts a new project, whatever it is, let's say themselves, let's say you yourself are the project, a person has to understand that it doesn't always work the first time. All beginnings are difficult. All beginnings are difficult because a lot of times people don't realize that they won't necessarily succeed the first time that they try. And so a person has to build in that level of patience with themselves in the process from the outset. They have to understand that sometimes they're going to have to make several stabs at it. Sometimes multiple stabs, sometimes a lifetime of stabs at it in order for it to kick in. You know, and you know, endings are difficult too. That's the reality too. Endings are also difficult. You know, something that uh, I think is so special, a segula that um, Reb Shlomo brought down, is that glila, the mitzvah, the aliyah of wrapping up the Torah, is a segula for endings, for finishing. Because you're wrapping up the Torah, you know? And he said that endings are difficult because Mashiach is in here yet. Because Mashiach represents the ultimate closure to this drama of creation that we're in. And since that ultimate end point, that ultimate closure isn't here yet, it's, it's, hard, to, it's, it's hard to end. It's hard to end something. Um, so, so Hashem makes us. And He makes this world. And, um, and I'll tell you this, uh, this, this teaching that I just came across that I really love, it's from Rav Aaron of Sadigora. I'll tell you something about Sadigora after this. He points out something really cool. He says, you know, the light source of something, we're talking about the creation of the um, stars and the planets vis-a-vis a human being or, or the sun and the earth. You'll see what I'm talking about in a moment. He says that the size of a light source isn't as, is smaller than what it's trying to light up. Okay, so the example is a lamp is smaller than the room it's trying to light up, right? Everyone knows that. A lamp is smaller than the room it's trying to light up. So now listen to this. So then why is the sun bigger than the earth? (laughs) The sun is the source of light. The sun is the lamp. How can the sun be bigger than the earth? Is everyone here? It's a great question. So the answer is, he says, you got it all wrong. It's all based on a misconception. He says, he says, the world is created for Israel. And let's understand what that means for a moment, you know? Because it sounds very, um, it sounds very, uh, uh, limited somehow or, or, or biased somehow. I mean, we have to, we have to appreciate what this means. 
When it says that the world was created for Israel, what it means is that the goal of Israel, the goal of the Jewish people, is to uplift and to transform the world and to bring it to its creation. And that that mission is shared by all of humanity. By all of humanity. We have to understand that everyone, Jewish, non-Jewish, everyone has a share in this process. And it has to be. I mean, there's no way to think otherwise. Because if God create, if God looked into the Torah and created the world, if the Torah is the blueprint for existence, then it has to be that all of existence has a share in the Torah. And in fact, we find that people who are Jewish have their share of mitzvahs, and people who aren't Jewish also have their share of Torah mitzvahs. We have the Sheva mitzvahs b'nei Noach. And that's, that's, a, that's a huge thing in itself. So everyone has a share in the Torah. So, so when we understand, so that when we understand that the world was created for the sake of Israel, for the mission of perfecting the world, then we understand that everything is just there in service of that larger goal. Which means that you say that the earth is larger than the, that the sun is larger than the earth. That the sun is larger than someone who's dedicating themselves to the perfection of the world? Wrong. <laughs> it's not. It's not. Yeah, maybe on the outside it is. But on the inside? Let's talk about insides for a moment. You know, some people get hung up on, you know, in mysteries, if you're into mysteries, there's a, uh, a term called red herrings. Um, don't, don't look for them at Zabar's. They, uh, they, uh, they are false leads, meaning mystery writers throw in uh, dead ends to keep the audience interested. Like, oh, maybe it's that guy. Or maybe it's, oh, that guy had a motive. It's, it's probably that guy. But that's all there just to keep you entertained and to send you in the wrong direction from the real thing. This world is filled with red herrings. Filled with red herrings. That's how God wanted it. That's how God created this world. On purpose. On purpose. So one of the things that people get caught up with is the notion of the age of the universe and also the, the whole idea of evolution as well. And I won't pretend to tackle this in a comprehensive way, but I just want to give you a couple of ideas that resonate with me personally and I think are very interesting. And maybe you've heard them before. I, I even heard one of them that I'm about to uh, offer. But I never really thought about it fully. And it's, it's, it's something that's really gotten under my skin, you know. Anyway, let's just say something from Rabbi Nachman first. Rabbi Nachman says, what's the difference between science and Torah? He says, science answers the question, how? Torah answers the question, why? Science looks at a phenomena from the outside. Torah looks at it from the inside. Okay? So, you know something? If I'm having a crisis in my life, or if I need to know why was the world created, why do I exist, what am I doing here, I'm not going to look in a chemistry textbook. It's not going to answer the question. It may tell me how, 
But it doesn't tell me why. I need to know why. So, so evolution, you see, what, what I really don't understand about evolution, honestly, I mean, I get the poetry of it. Honestly, I get the poetry of it. There's a little thing, and then it grows into a big thing. The amoeba becomes a fish, and then the fish gets legs, and eventually it becomes an ape, and the ape becomes a man, right? So I, 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 get, I get the poetry of it, believe me. I'm, I'm not an idiot. But at the same time, let me ask you something. The God who created all of time and space, who created the entire universe, he can't create an amoeba and a fish and an ape and a man? The one who can do anything can't bring it all into existence and can't bring it all into existence at once if he desires? So, okay, you say, well, no, I, I, I like the idea of the amoeba. So where did the amoeba come from? <laughs> A single cell, where did that come from? Where did time and space come from? You want to go back to the beginning? Okay, let's go back to the beginning. And then you want to go back to the Big Bang? The Torah has been talking about the Big Bang for thousands of years. The Evan the foundation point in the base of Mikdash. It says that God brought all of existence together by creating a single point of matter. A single point of matter, and you can visit it. It's in the base of Mikdash. You can go to Jerusalem to the Kotel. You can stand within feet of it. If you take the tunnel tour, it's such an intense moment. There's one point where they stop you and they go, right over there is the foundation stone, just beyond this wall. And you can sit there and you can daven like crazy. In fact, I'll tell you a story. I made this little movie um, with this awesome Breslover chassid. Hey, did you ever see it? Did you? No? It's, uh, anyway, I got to get it back on YouTube. Um, but um, basically, it's just like crazy dancing in the streets of Jerusalem. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so, uh, so this, 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 this chassid is just like the, his name is Yosef. He's like this, the sweetest guy in the world. And I just like, as soon as I saw him, I, I knew I had to make some kind of movie with him, you know? Anyway, it's, it's like a minute long, whatever. But, um, but at the end of the shooting, he came up to me and he said, uh, he said, you know, I really feel like we have the same root neshama, like our, our, our soul comes from the same root. And, um, so bless you. So I said to him, uh, I said, um, are you a Levi? Because I'm a Levi. You know, that's one of the tribes of Israel. So he said, yeah, I'm a Levi. And now my mother is a Bas Kohen. She's the daughter of a Kohen. But I thought, you know, we just had this wonderful moment and we had just done the shooting and it had gone so well and everything like that and we just bonded on this Levi thing. I'm not going to ask him if his mother's a Bas Kohen. You know, it's just going to ruin the whole moment, you know. So, so, so we just, you know, so I just left it at that. There was a pause. And then he said to me, is your mother a Bas Kohen? <laughs> I said, yeah. And then he said to me, let me tell you a story. <laughs> he said, there was a group of us and we were in the tunnel, you know, by the, by the, by the Kotel, by the Holy Wall in Jerusalem. And we were by that spot, which is closest 
to the Evin the foundation stone, the first point of physical matter that Hashem brought into the world before He expanded it into the universe as we know it. And He said, and we were davening like crazy. And then somehow it came up, we all started just asking each other questions because the davening was so strong. And all of us were Levium, whose mothers were all Bas Kohens. Now the odds of that are, I don't even want to guess. It's like one in a trillion, basically. You know? So, so anyway. So, the question is not, how did Hashem bring existence into the world? Because, you know what? We're already in the middle of the story. You know what I mean? It's like, if there's a huge rock... Like, you know that famous thing in Indiana Jones where the giant rock is chasing him and he's running away from the giant boulder? You don't just stop there and look at the rock and say, Rock, why are you rolling toward me? <laughs> i got to get this straight. No, you're in the middle of the story right now. The question right now is, what now? You know, one of the best teachings I ever heard um, was someone said like this, listen, it's so, it's so good. He said, he said, at the end of 120, in other words, at the end of our lives, we're going to know the answers to all of our questions, but we're not going to be able to do anything about it. He says, right now, we don't have all the answers, but we can do something about it. That's an amazing thing. A lot of people make a huge mistake. They go, okay, I'll do something about it when I've got all the answers right now. You know what that is? That's a recipe for paralysis and for a wasted life. If you're waiting till you have absolutely all of the answers before you start saying, okay, God, how can I serve you with all of my heart, soul, and power? You, you, you've, designed, you've designed a failing recipe. You know? I mean, if you could taste, if you could taste that state of mind, you'd spit it out. Because it's, it's a bad recipe. It won't lead to success. Okay, so then the other side of that is, you might find yourself in the middle of this awesome world-changing project, and you might say to yourself, now why am I doing this again? <laughs> why? What? What's going on exactly? But the alternative, what's the alternative? To do nothing? That's, that's a much worse alternative. You know, I remember there was someone coming closer to Torah, and uh, I, was, I witnessed a conversation between them and my wife, and my wife said to this person, you know, just to try to reassure them, of course, the Torah is true. We say Torah temet, it's all true. And by the way, not only is it all true, but it's not true to the extent that you believe it's true. <laughs> it's true even to the extent that you don't believe it's true. It's completely true. Okay? So, so she was saying to this person, you know something? Let's say you get to the end of the process and you realize it's not true. I mean, that's not, that's not a practical scenario, but she was just trying to reassure this person. So then... What harm have you done? You've had a little more chicken soup than you probably would have had ordinarily. <laughs> Maybe you shook a lulav in an Esther egg. You probably wouldn't have done that. But is that so terrible? You know, you gave some more charity than you may have wanted to. 
you know, I mean, what's so terrible? And on the upside, the upside is you can bring the world to a place of perfection. I mean, it's like, when you think of it in that way, how can you not? So, so in terms of the age of the universe, and we can close with this, and then I want to tell you the story about Sadigora. Um, and, you know, like I say, if I'm not bringing this as an answer to someone who already has answers in their heads. I'm bringing this as a thought to someone whose heart is open. And um, I just got this awesome new Chumash from Chabad, um, which is great. I highly recommend it. You should run to the store to get it. It's, um, oh, actually, it's right here. Look at that. Um, it's, uh, it's Chumash Breshis. It just came out. And in the, in the English um, translation to the Psukim, what they have is fleshed out in the English an inclusion of Rashi and Midrashim and the thoughts of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. So that you can actually, you can get a giant Torah education on your first read of the Torah. Because it fleshes out all of the things that you kind of find out years later was going on at that moment is all right there now available. And it's, it's, it's painstakingly footnoted so you can always see what's going on. So now one of the things it says is, we know that Adam and Eve, Adam and Chava, were created as adults. But did you know how old they were? I didn't know how old they were. So it brings it right here in the Medrash Rabbah. They were 20 years old. Now, I'll just give you my interpretation of that, because I was thinking, why 20 years old, you know? There's a teaching in the Talmud that says that one is responsible before the um, heavenly court at the end of their lives, only beginning at the age of 20 for what they've done. So what they've done before 20 is somehow, especially if a person does tshuva, a person should always try to do tshuva, repair whatever they've done, but... So this is, you know, there are a lot of kind of, um, there's some fine print attached to this teaching <laughs> that you have to look into. But nonetheless, 20 onward is really where a person is, is, is fully responsible, okay? So it makes sense that they would be created at the age of 20 because they eat from the Eitzadas, from the tree of knowledge. So they have to be responsible for their own actions and yet, why would Hashem create them if He's creating them anew one day older than He needs to create them? Right? So that's, that's just to me a, 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 an interesting uh, just window into like that first moment. Anyway, but listen to this. So we have different ways to understand the age of the universe. One way, by the way, and you know, one of the close Talmidim, um, his name is escaping me right now, excuse me, one of the close Talmidim of the Ramban a thousand years ago was already saying that the world is 15 billion years old, which is basically our, our present scientific understanding. And he was basing this on gematrias and, and, and Kabbalistic Masoras and things like that. So we know, even a thousand years ago, we had the number 15 billion years. So to say that, oh, Jews hold seven 24-hour days and this is crazy and all the rest. It's, it's not. It's just not consistent with what we've been saying. We've been saying other things, you know, but a person has to know what the Torah says. The Vilna Gon says something which uh, 
is also amazing. He says that Hashem didn't hang the sun and the earth, even though the sun and the earth were created, everything was created on the first day, but then it was Hashem sort of doled it out and, and put it, the, the various things in their proper place in creation. He didn't put the sun and the earth in the sky until it's either the third or the fourth day, you have to look it up. But, but in other words, between Hashem creating the world and hanging the sun and the moon and the earth and the sky, right? Billions of years could have passed. So you have it right even in a, not just kosher, glot kosher, so kosher you can eat it, sources, that the world is billions of years old, okay? But, but having said that, now let's hear on a very, very deep level how it's only 5,000 769 years old. And that's coming from the creation of the human being, remember. Not from the creation of the world. Time starts, because Rosh Hashanah starts, on the sixth day of creation, which is the creation of the human being. So this is already, in other words, in other words, the world can be billions of years old and 6,000 years old since the creation of the human being. Do you, do you follow? Because time is beginning, our calendar is beginning from the creation of the human being. But there are those who will tell you and this is also a kosher Torah opinion, that the world itself in total is 5,769 years old. Okay? So listen to the depth of this thought. When Adam and Chava were created, they were created anew as 20-year-olds. In other words, when they were created, they were created with a history. They, they were created as mature adults. So what's stopping Hashem, who can do anything, from bringing the world into creation with a history as well? And when you, when you contemplate the fact that a human being is a miniature of creation, is a miniature of the universe, the parallel works even better. Just like Adam and Eve were created anew with a history, what's stopping Hashem from creating the world itself with a history? And in that way, that's an awesome thought. That's an awesome, awesome, awesome thought, you know? So then why not? Why, why shouldn't the world be just under 6,000 years old? Why not? Okay, so let me just end with, a, with this story. Um, when the Rishner Rebbe left, um, left Russia, he had to be taken out of Russia. The Rishner Rebbe really tried to restore Malchus Base David, the, the, the glory of the King David line to the Jewish people. And, um, and he was an awesome, awesome tzaddik, one of the greatest of the Hasidic masters. And, um, you know, they had gold plates in his court and there was finery and everything like this, but he himself, it was only for, for his Hasidim, just to restore the glory of the Torah. It was not for him. And in fact, I mean, it's a very intense story. They, they, they tell accounts of how his shoes, which were like, you know, like the finest, finest, you know, like shoes, like what a king would wear, that when we, he would walk in the snow, it would leave a trail of blood because on the bottom there was no soul because he didn't want to personally benefit from any of this finery. It was just for other people. You know, he didn't want to profit from it. 
So the original Rebbe, I'll tell you another story of the original Rebbe. When they threw him into prison because the Tsar was informed that he's trying to, with all this royal kind of flair, that he's trying to take over Russia, right? Like the idiocy. Like the original Rebbe is trying to take over Tsarist Russia. So, so, so they threw him into prison and the original Rebbe said that wherever a Jew goes, the Shekhinah follows him. And that his greatest pain is, is that as he was put into this dank prison, you can imagine, right? That he was bringing the Shekhinah to this place. Can you imagine? He wasn't, even, he wasn't thinking about himself. He was thinking about Hashem. They, they managed to, to get the original Rebbe out of Russia. And they got him over the border into Austria. Now, they brought him to a place called uh, Sadigora. And in fact, you see there are Sadigora Rebbe's. And these are the sons of the original Rebbe. So, so it wasn't so simple getting someone who was, someone who was suspected of opposing the authority of the Tsar out of the country and to accept him into another country can cause an international incident between the two countries. So Austria, who's to say Austria wants to do something for a Jew? Right? Especially at this time. Why should Austria do anything for, for him? So they knew that there was a Jewish minister and this Jew was not um, religious. And, um, and the, but this was their closest contact, contact to, the, to the seat of government. And so they appealed to him, please do what you can so that the original Rebbe should be able to stay in Austria out of harm's way. And they said, he's a very great man. And so this man said, well, tell me about how great he is. And they said back, well, you know, when he eats, he always brings the fork up to his mouth. He never brings his head to the fork. So he said, okay, I'll think about it. And he came back sometime later and he says, okay, I'm, gonna, I'm going to... Uh, I'm going to work it out so that the original Rebbe can stay in Austria. And he says, I want, I want you to know something. Had you told me a miracle that this Rebbe had done, I wouldn't have believed it and I wasn't going to help you. But after I left your presence, I went to go eat lunch. And it stuck in my head what you said. And I tried to bring the fork to my mouth as opposed to bringing my head to the fork. And I saw how extraordinarily difficult it is to do that. And the idea that this person is so refined that he has worked on himself in such an exalted way that he brings the fork to his mouth, I said, this is a person worth saving. And so, as we approach Breshis again, as we approach this cycle of the creation of the world anew, where we've jumped a level, where we've participated. Remember, it's coming 22 days after Rosh Hashanah, where we have our share in the creation of the world. Let's look at ourselves. Let's view ourselves as canvases that we can make art out of. And let's just make the world and each other more beautiful.